when I read the Bible, I, I read where they have trumpet players in heaven. I think Jeff's going to fit right in. What do you think? He'll, he'll be right at home there. Yes, he will. Take your Bibles this evening and go to Psalm 144. Psalm 144. We'll spend a few minutes here. This psalm, uh, one of the interesting things about studying the book of Psalms, if you read behind other authors, you'll find each one of them has their own titles and, and interpretations, not wildly, but they call their, the headings of these psalms different things. But really, what this psalm is about, is about praise and trust in God. Uh, David praises God and confesses that he trusts God. Probably this psalm was written after some answered prayer, restoration, after some victory. Um, some authors think it's after God restored him to the throne, after Absalom tried to kill him. Uh, but there's no doubt it's after God did some great thing in David's life, restored him after a great danger, and he's thankful for that. He praises God and confesses his trust in God uh, in this psalm. So look at verse 1 of Psalm 144. As he begins to ascribe to God all the credit, all the glory for his successes. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. What an interesting verse. Um, David, remember, was the youngest of a bunch of boys. He had seven brothers who were older than him. And you'll remember that he had no apparent great expectations for himself, certainly to be king of Israel. What I'm saying is he had humble beginnings. He was a shepherd the youngest of eight boys, and his dad, obviously, and his older brothers had him watching the sheep. And so he was the youngest of all those boys. And you'll remember when Samuel came to Jesse's house, when God said, go anoint a new king for Israel, nobody paid any attention to David, if you remember the process. Starting with the oldest boy, down to the one right above David, God denied them all and said, that's not him, that's not him. And finally, uh, in somewhat of exacerbation, Samuel said, don't you have any other boys? And Jesse, of course, said, well, I got one more, but he's the run of the litter and he's watching the sheep. And he said, well, go get him. And sure enough, when he showed up, God said, there he is. Not, not them others, but him. So what I'm saying is David understood from his beginnings that he had no inkling, no aspirations, no thought to try to be the king or be anything great in Israel God made him what he was. God's the one who called him from following the sheep. God's the one who moved him to be who he was in the nation of Israel. And then I was thinking, while he's out there watching those sheep, he was actually in training. And no matter where God has you and I in life, you're in training to serve God, really your whole life. You think, well, God, I'm, I'm in this place in life and doesn't seem like I can do a whole lot for you. No, you can always serve God no matter where you are. And God always is training us for the next step. It is those people who are doing nothing for God and are learning nothing who, get, who, who don't get to move to the next step. But if you're serving God where you are, wherever he has you, then God has plans for you to use you every day in every way. Think about David. He's the youngest of a bunch of boys. And if you had brothers at home, you know how that is. He's the youngest of a bunch of boys and he's out there watching his sheep. But think about the benefits and what God did in his life. David had every day 
and every evening to look at creation and think about God and meditate. Where do you think David grew to be a man after God's own heart? Sitting out in an empty field, looking at the stars and watching those sheep and thinking about God's word and meditating on the truth of God. And it grew his heart to be a man after God's own heart. And you think, well, David ended up being a mighty warrior. David said, that wasn't me. God taught my hands to war. David was uh, good with a sling. And that's the thing they slung around their head and they threw a rock. And I know we don't see much about that in weaponry, but in Israel, that was a weapon. And there were men who were trained to use that thing lethally. And you can only imagine David out there in the field with those sheep practicing with that sling day after day, after hour after. Listen, I, I've never had to watch sheep. I've been around sheep. I've been around a lot of farm animals. We had animals growing up and horses and chickens and various animals. Never really had a bunch of sheep, but taking care of animals can be kind of boring. I mean, they just eat a lot, make a mess, and, you know, that's about it. So David's watching his sheep, and as he spends his time out there thinking about God, he's uh, breaking limbs off and hitting trees and hitting rocks and throwing with that sling, and he got pretty good with the thing. And what David's saying is, God taught me to war. He taught me to be able to do these things. And so what we find here is David giving God all the glory for where he is, going from a, from a young man, the least of all of his brothers, God choosing him to be the king and God training him and using him. And it was no accident when, when David showed up on the field of battle with Goliath and, and slung a stone and knocked him out, David was an expert with that thing. It was no accident God trained him to do that. And so David gives God all the glory for the victories. After David became king, he subdued every nation around Israel. They had to come to peace terms with him on his terms, not theirs. Why? Because he'd already wore them out. And David very clearly says here, I didn't do that, God did that. God told me when to go to war. God gave me the victories over the enemies around me and God's the one who did that, not me. What do we learn from this first verse? Something very important. You ready? We owe all our successes in life to God. Amen. Every one of them. There's nothing that we enjoy in life, no success, no thing that we, that we might be good at or talented at or skilled at, not us. It is the height of arrogance and the greatest of insults to God to claim for ourselves what he's done. And we should never do that. I wrote a list. You love my list, don't you? I got a list here. If you are blessed to possess some great skill, whatever it is, God gave it to you. I don't care if it's a guy who can throw a football 70 yards through a hoop. I don't care if it's a guy who can run like the wind. I don't care if it's someone who has some great natural ability in some area of mathematics or academia or speech writing, you name it, God gave you that skill. And God gave it to you to use. And he gave it to you to be prosperous. But he gave it to you. And you are successful and I am successful in whatever it is we do because God makes us successful. Do you have some great talent? Do we possess a great talent? God gave it to us. Have we achieved in this life some level of success and reputation and 
maybe prestige and honor in the field of work where we work. That's not offensive to God, long as we do it humbly, because God gave it to us. God put us there, much as he did David. Has God blessed you with worldly possessions? Are you wealthy in life, not just spiritually, but materially? God gave it to you. You say, well, you don't know. I worked my whole life and I saved good, good for you. God's the one who gave you breath and gave you the ability to earn the income that you earned for all of us, not just you. So God gave it to us. Have we grown over the years in our faith to some level of spiritual maturity where God's given us understanding of life? God did that, not us. We didn't come to that level by any brilliance of our own. I assure you that. Then I wrote down to live in, to live in security and peace, to live with joy and peace in our heart, to know that when the world all around us is falling apart and, and, and going down fast because of sin and debauchery and foolishness, but to be able to live with a peace and a confidence, God does that. God, the Holy Spirit does that, not us. So I would suggest we need to be like David in this, in this form and say, God, whatever I am in life, you made me that. Wherever I am in life, you put me there. And God, any successes, any victories over the enemy, God, you gave them. We didn't earn it by our own prowess, that's for sure. And then David talks about his relationship with God, beginning in verse two. Notice what he says. He says of God that you are my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge who subdues my people under me. That's closely connected to verse one. He's saying, God, you are the one not only that gave me success, but here's how you did it. You're my loving kindness, my fortress, my tower, my deliverer, my shield, the one who has given me refuge, the one who subdued people under me, the, the one who, who gave me the victory and gave me the, the ability to do this. And if you think about each of these things very quickly, they're very poignant. Number one, he said, God, you're my, my goodness. Well, goodness, that's who God is. He's good. And he wants to do good for us, but it's more than that. Can you not say in your life as David here that God has exceeded my greatest expectations in goodness? Who could have imagined God would do for me what he did for me? Who could imagine God would do for you what he's done for you? Who could have imagined? We couldn't, especially when we understand how sinful and undone we are and how holy he is. He is our goodness, just as David said. I went so far as to write here, everything in life that is good come from God. It's all from him. The goodness of waking up and breathing his air and living here, it's all from God. And David said, God, you are my goodness. God is our goodness. He exceeds all that we could imagine in goodness, saved our soul, forgave our sin, gave us eternal life, made us his children, made us heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Can, we can go on created a home for us where we can live with him forever. God's goodness exceeds all that we could begin to understand, his loving kindness. Then David said, you're my fortress and my high tower. I like that. You know what David's saying there? The walls on Jerusalem look good, but that ain't what keeps me safe. 
The towers are nice and the guards are up there, but that's not why I sleep good at night. He said, oh no. He said, God stands guard for me. God's my refuge. He says, God is my fortress and my tower. It's not my skill. He said, it's not the skill of the army. And can I make a, a very serious application here? Two of them. Number one, it is not the military of the United States that ultimately keeps us safe as God. Amen. It's not how many tanks you got and how many airplanes you got and how many ships you got. It's not how many soldiers you have and how many Marines you have, although the Marines are pretty tough. If God's not on our side, we are undone. You understand that, right? The greatest armies in the world were defeated because God was against them. Ask the Persians, okay? Alexander the Great outnumbered four or five to one in most battles, wore them guys out. You know why? You know why? Yes, he was a great general, but God had already determined before time began that the Greeks would destroy the Persians. So they didn't stand a chance. The same could be true for this nation if we aren't careful. If we aren't careful. I'll tell you on a spiritual level where this is true. David said, God, you're my fortress and my high tower. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, 12 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That there's a spiritual warfare going around us every day that we can't see. You know what keeps us safe? God himself, the Holy Spirit who lives in us. He is our fortress, our high tower. If God were to pull back the curtain of the spiritual world and allow us to see the spiritual warfare that goes on, it would probably scare us to death. But you know why we can sleep good at night? You know why we can rest? Because we got one who is our fortress and our tower and it's Jesus Christ himself. He cares for us and he protects us. Then David said, hey, he's my deliverer. Now, David isn't just speaking of one time. Maybe there was an instance here, God delivered him from Absalom or for some other battle. But you know what David's saying here? God is my perpetual deliverer. He does it all the time. He's always keeping me. He's always watching over me. He's always making sure that I don't fall, that at the end of the day, I'm standing. God does that for us. If not for the power of the Holy Spirit in our Christian lives as we walk, we'd not stand a chance in this world. God delivers us all the time. Then he said, he's my shield, which is really closely connected to my deliverer. And I, and I was thinking about that. In that warfare of that day, a shield was very important. It was the way a soldier defended himself from the attacks of the enemy. Hey, you got a sword or a spear or a javelin, but a shield, a shield protected you from harm. And a shield was often used to protect the man next to you. And the man next to you protected you, especially in the phalanx in the, in the Greek fighting formations. God is our shield. I really believe this is true. I really believe that we have no idea of the ways God shields us today. We have no concept of the times in life when God protects us and we don't even know it. I can think of my own life being a young man, of looking back at events that happened in my life when I could have easily died, when I could have easily, my life would have been over. I fell off the flight deck one time on an aircraft carrier. You want fun? Try that one time. Nighttime, working up there at night, and uh, a guy didn't bring his flashlight. I had my flashlight. And he said, can I borrow your flashlight? And against my better judgment, I let him use it. And there was a, the edge of the deck has a yellow mark on it. And the handle on the uh, chaff pod, we were loading on an airplane, had a yellow handle. 
And I thought I was stepping over the yellow handle on the chaff pod, but guess what I was stepping over? It was the edge of the flight deck. I didn't go in the water, praise God, because it's dark out there in the ocean in the middle of the night. I landed on a missile sponson about 10 feet down. Pastor, did it hurt? You bet. That deck is steel, and it hurt bad. Listen, God, you say, well, how did God protect you? I didn't go in the water. I mean, I fall on the steel flight deck all day long. Long as I'm going to water in the middle of the night, okay? Not that I'm afraid of the water, but when the ship's sailing away and it's dark, that's not the view you want, all right? I mean, that's not, you know, you're bobbing around in the water 90 foot down. Listen, God protects us. You don't know how many times God has been a shield to you that you were going to be in a car wreck and God prevented the car wreck from happening. You don't know how many times you were on your way to the doctor and he was going to find something wrong with you and he didn't find anything wrong with you. Why? Because God didn't want anything to be wrong with you. We don't know what God has done. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be awful, awful surprised. I think we're going to be able to see all that God did in our lives as he moved us along. David said, Lord, you're my shield. You protect me. You take care of me. And then the last thing he, he says here as he moves into into verses three and four, he talks about God's goodness as it's highlighted. Look at what he says in verses three and four. He says, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you're mindful of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. David speaks in those two verses. He says, God, over here on this side, we have your, your unmeasurable goodness to us. Your, your care for us, you're our shield and our refuge. God, you've done all this for me and you're just so good to me. He said, and then over here, we got me and mankind and we're completely unworthy of any of that. We're undone, we're vanity, we're empty. We're, our, our lives are like a, a breath and it goes away. And he uses two words to describe man here. The first, Lord, what is man? And then, or the son of man, the first the first word is just Adam. It just means mankind. It just means humanity. And he's saying, God, what, is, what, are, what are men and women to you? What are we in comparison to who you are? And his insinuation is nothing, nothing. We have no intrinsic goodness or value, especially in our fallen sinful state. Listen, you and I do nothing for God to make him better or worse in any way. We don't, we don't add to God. We don't make him greater than he already is. We bring nothing to the table. You understand that? And David goes, Lord, we bring nothing to the table. Why do you care about us? Why do you care what happens to us? God, you have the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim and you have, and you have archangels and you have all these creatures that you've created that are magnificent and they worship you all the time. And then there's us. Created in your image and rebellious to the core. Then there's us, created in your image and abusing and misusing everything that you gave us to be good. God, then there's us. Why do you care? Why do you care? And then the second word for man there is, is enosh, which means uh, the moral context of man. It's always used in the context of, of wrong and bent the wrong way and immoral. Wretched sinners would be the word. So David said, Lord, you're good, you're, you're all these things to us and to me. And yet here I am, one of humanity, who's undone, who makes a wreck of everything, and yet you love me anyway. Yet you care about me. God, I am morally undone. 
and make, a, and make a, a total disaster out of most things that I touch. And yet, God, you teach my hands to war and you give me victory and you set me in a place of honor and of respect. Why? Because I don't deserve it. Now we know the answer because God is love, right? We learned that this morning. God is love. He's light and he loves us. And all David's doing is he's in a very strong way saying, God, it is amazing that you would do that. It's amazing that you would care about me. And I thought about David's life and all that happened to him. And, and just think about this. I'm sure David questioned as he went through this list, his own life. There's no doubt David was haunted by his own sins. And we've, we've studied this before. In the moment that we sin and we confess, we are forgiven. Praise God for that. But there are sins that we commit that have more open consequences than others, more painful consequences than others. Every sin has a consequence, none are free. We said that this morning. David basically got full of himself and sinned with Bathsheba. Think about this situation. He's the greatest king anywhere around there. God had exalted him. He's young and he's good looking. He's rich, he's famous, and people love him. He's a national hero. He's the, he's the man of the hour. And then he messes up. In that setting, he thinks that he's all that. And he has an affair with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. And then to solve the problem, instead of confessing and getting right, he kills her husband. I can only imagine as David thought through this process and he thinks about the pain and the damage and the wreck that was caused by his sin, he's saying to God, God, how could you love me? How could you be this good to me? Think about it. I'm almost sure it would be human for David to always see the face of Uriah and remember that's the man I killed. An innocent man, a man who was in his personal guard, a man who was among his mighty men, a man who was sworn allegiance to him to give his life to defend David and Jehovah God in Jerusalem. And David killed the man for his own personal sin. I assure you that haunted David to the day he died. And then the consequences of that had to be even greater. Ahithophel, we talked about him last week. Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. Ahithophel had been David's closest companion and counselor. And when Absalom began to lead the revolt, Ahithophel went to Absalom's side against David. Why do you think he did that? He killed my grandbaby's husband and committed adultery with her and tried to cover it up. You're no friend of mine. That's what happened there. And you'll remember that Ahithophel, I told you this last week, he told Absalom, he said, listen to me, you need to kill your dad as quick as possible because he's a warrior. And you need, to, you need to do it now and you need to snuff it out before he gets time to regroup because he's dangerous. And Absalom didn't do it and David won. Now Absalom wasn't gonna win anyway, you understand that because God didn't pick Absalom to be the king. But my point is Ahithophel knew. Can you imagine the pain in David's heart? 
that Ahithophel, after he found out his counsel wasn't accepted, he went out and hung himself and committed suicide. So now David has lost, has lost a warrior in Uriah at his own hands. He's lost his closest friend who's hung himself over a sin, over his sin. Then think of the other consequences. Amnon, one of David's boys, Tamar gets shamed. Absalom kills Amnon, his other son, one brother killing another, his daughter shamed, then a bunch of David's wives humiliated publicly by Absalom, all because of a sin. And God forgave David, but here's the point for recounting all that. David says to God, what is man that you are mindful of him? And I'm sure in David's heart, he's saying, God, who am I that you are mindful of me? And I thought, can we not all say that? Can we not all look in our lives and say, God, who am I that you would care what happens to me? That's the goodness of God. And that's who God was to David. That's how precious it was to him. I would say to you tonight, as we think about that, it is amazing that God would love us, that God would love you and me, that God would save us and put us in his family and promise us all the goodness. Because listen to me, our sin, your sin and mine are no, is no less heinous than that of David. No less severe, no less damaging, no less hurtful. And yet God loves us the same. Same as for David. Now, David moves from that praising God and, and his relationship with God to talking about the power of God. Notice in verses five to eight. Now he's asking this in regard to the enemy. Now he says this. God, bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of the great waters from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I love this. David is asking God for help right here. He's saying, God, I got the enemy there. And uh, we don't know who they are, but he uses the term foreigners, which means they are outside of Israel. So probably not a case here of Absalom, maybe the Philistines or some other group of people around him. And he says to God, he says, God, come down out of the heavens. And these are all, all metaphorical terms for God. You move in a mighty way. You defend me. God, you come down and you handle these, these people who want to hurt me. God, you scatter them. You make their plans to come to no fruition. God, you confuse them. And God, you give me the victory. That's a great request, especially in light of David saying, God, who am I that you care about me? Oh, and by the way, I'm glad you do. Can you help me out here? That's pretty good. God, why do you care about me? But since you do, I got the enemy here and God, I need you to come down in your power and deal with it. I wrote this down in my notes here. Every battle belongs to the Lord, every battle. Did you know our daily spiritual battles belong to the Lord? They're not ours. The things we face in the day, the struggles, the sins that assault us, the temptations, the battle belongs to the Lord. If we go out there in the world to fight those battles in the power of the flesh, they're gonna eat our lunch. 
we have no hope. But the battle belongs to the Lord. We could pray the same kind of prayer. God, come down from the heavens. Show your power, God. Show yourself to be strong. See, we have one advantage David didn't have. The Holy Spirit lives in us permanently. And he's there to do that. One of the things I like to pray in the mornings in my prayer time, God, go before me and go behind me. Go in front of me. Go behind me. Don't let the enemy sneak up behind me. And God, you go before me and clear my out of the way. God, go before me. And isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, deliver me today from temptation. You know what Jesus said? That's what we need to be praying. God, the battle's yours. So why don't you fight it for me before I get there? And set me up for winning before I show up. Because if God sets us up to win before we get there, we're good. God will show himself strong. That's what David's praying for here. Now, David gives a praise because he's asked in verses five to eight, he's prayed for God's intervention. And now he's gonna praise God because he's anticipating the answer. Man, that's a good prayer life. He prays for something and then he goes, God, I'm gonna praise you for doing it. That's confidence, isn't it? That's a relationship. Look at verses nine to 11. I will sing a new song to you, O Lord, O God. On a harp of 10 strings, I will sing praises to you. Verse 10, the one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David, his servant from the deadly sword, rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words, whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. He's saying there, he says, Lord, I'm gonna praise you with a new song because you're gonna do what I ask you to do. You're gonna show yourself strong. I like the part about a new song. Sometimes I pick on people, they'll say, Pastor, why do we sing all them new songs? David said, I'm gonna sing a new song. There you go, there you go. You go, that ain't what I had in mind. I know, I know. David said, Lord, I'm gonna praise you with a new song. Here's the real reason, okay? God's mercies, listen to me. God's mercies are new every day. The praise for yesterday's mercies won't do today. We need, we need a new praise. That doesn't mean you gotta sing a different song. What it means is this though, every day God's mercies are new. Listen to Lamentations, listen to Jeremiah, Lamentations 3, 22. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Is that what David's saying right here? Listen, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. David's saying, God, because you are that, because your mercies are new every day, because your faithfulness is new every day, I'm gonna praise you afresh every day. I'm gonna sing a new song every day. Yesterday's praises are good, because you were good yesterday, but today you're good, and I'm gonna sing today. Man, what a lesson for us. One of the reasons to be walking in fellowship with God, as we studied this morning, is to praise him for his goodness, to praise him for his constant goodness to us, freshness every day, new mercies every day. And then David closes this Psalm with what I would call a vision of the kingdom. Notice what he says in verses 12 to 15. And all that praising and talking about how good God is and how van, vain man is and vanity and emptiness and then asking God to help him and praising God because he's gonna help him, he, he moves to this. He, he's, his thoughts have now 
gone to, uh, to what God's gonna do in the end. Verse 12, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style. Verse 13, that our barns may be full, supplying all kinds of produce, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields, that our oxen may be well laden, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no outcry in our streets. Look at verse 15, happy are the people who are in such a state, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. You say, wow, that's a pretty, uh, a pretty impressive time to be alive. That's pretty impressive. Listen, there's, our, our young people are growing up to know God and they're planted like pillars and they're growing up in security and safety and, and, and supplies, animals. We have thousands and tens of thousands of sheep and oxen are laden down and full of supplies and food and happiness. And there's, there's no fear of, of, of being outcries for enemy or danger, no going out or coming in. And happy are the people who live this way, fulfilled. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. When will Israel live in a day like that? Never have yet. They will when Jesus comes back. When Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom, he's on the throne of David. That's exactly how it's gonna be. Plenty, safety, security. The nation will, will be the king of the earth. Israel will be the center and people will go there to worship Jesus Christ and happy will those people be whose God is the Lord, because Jesus will be sitting on the throne. This is a great psalm of praise and trust in God, a great psalm to encourage us when, we're, uh, when we have become like David maybe in our fears and our failures. But know this tonight, know this tonight, no matter what we've done in life, no matter the damage that our failures have brought, God loves us. No matter how unworthy we are, no matter how undone we are, God will never forsake us. And if you're a child of God, he's got you right in his hand. And God always forgives and he always pardons. And God's so gracious, he does this. When we make a mess out of things in our own lives with our sin, God walks with us through the pain of that because he's gracious and he's merciful. God didn't always deliver us from the consequences of our own foolishness, but he never leaves us alone. He never abandons us. If you're here tonight and you've never been saved and you want to know to God that will be that way in your life, come to Jesus tonight. Ask him to forgive your sin. Ask him to save you tonight. If you're a child of God, if you are saved, take encouragement from the things David says here because what was true of David is true for you and I as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for an encouraging passage. Thank you, God, for loving us, God for being good to us, being our shield and our high tower and our refuge. Thank you, God, that you fight the battle, that you lead the way. God, if there's someone here tonight who is without Christ, man or woman, boy or girl, young person, in the quietness of this moment, God, from their seat, they can say, God, I, I wanna be saved. God, I'm lost and I wanna be saved. God, save me right now. Forgive my sin, be the Lord of my life and God, you'll save them. Father, if there's somebody here tonight who's struggling, maybe they're hurting on the inside, maybe there's something in their life, God, that's troubling them. God, you never leave us nor forsake us. Your mercies are new every day, they're fresh. God, let us praise you with a new song. Bless this time of invitation, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing. I'll be glad to pray with you if you need to come. Lord, I give you my 